If you would, take out the Word of God and turn to 1 Peter. Continue our sermon series uh, through the book of 1 Peter. As a reminder, uh, we don't ask for you to turn your cell phones off, but if there are notifications on your phone or your iPad that will distract you from the Word of God, uh, I would encourage you to turn those off. Uh, One of the great things about technology is we can study the Word of God more deeply. We can have it wherever we are. Uh, And one of the uh, negatives to having the Word of God is we also have a lot of other things that clutter up the Word of God. Uh, And so social media, text messages, just maybe uh, work up some grit in your gut to not check those things as we move through the Word of God together. And you can hold each other accountable to that. If you see your husband perusing Facebook, maybe poke him in the ribs or something. It, guys, this is, this is kind of a sarcastic comment. You can laugh. You're all, some of you just must be really guilty of that. You don't know what to do in this moment. First uh, Peter, uh, we continue our sermon series, Dispersed and Someone, I didn't even realize this, but someone said it fits really good right after Acts where we talk about Jesus acting, taking his church to the ends of the earth. And then we deal with the idea that God has literally dispersed us all over the globe to be aliens and strangers and different in whatever culture that we're in. And today we're going to look at verses 3 through 12. Um, and uh, we're, we're going to dig into those verses. I'm going to read the whole thing as you stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect word. I'll just remind you, this isn't, we, we don't use the Bible to sort of jump off of into some sort of tips or pep talk. We, we come before the Bible as our authority. We want to say, Jesus, what would you say to us? Jesus, what, what would you have us do? What have you done for us? And when we come before the Word of God, it is the words of Christ that are our authority. And hear the words of Christ to us, 1 Peter beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not know him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, 
inquiring what kind of person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you, though those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. Oh God, we stop and we acknowledge as we have your word before us, as those who have been marked out by the blood of Christ, that there are cosmic galactic beings who are peering in in shock and awe and wonder that you would redeem us. Oh God, we praise your name for giving us Christ, for sending your Son to die for our sins under your wrath so that we might be declared righteous, not guilty, as though we've never sinned. God, we praise your name for raising him from the dead as this victorious warrior who is seated at your right hand, who rules and reigns over everything. And God, we come before your word today and we plead, we plead that those realities would make us different, strange, weird, in a world full of sin and death. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Maybe seated. Tractor truck racing, Bigfoot. When I say Bigfoot, I mean the monster truck Bigfoot, not Sasquatch. And a meet and greet with the king, Richard Petty. This was an event that my dad had planned for me and him to go to at the Nashville Motor Speedway. And I was going to see tractor trucks, the ones, the 18-wheelers. They were going to race around Nashville Speedway. And I was going to see Bigfoot crush cars. And I was going to get, get to shake hands with Richard Petty. This was something a little redneck boy from Tennessee really made my head explode just thinking about. And I remember the week of this event, I, was, I, couldn't, I couldn't sleep. I remember the Saturday just trying to waste time until my dad finally came home and we were going to leave to go to Nashville. I remember being antsy about it. And then I remember the drive up very vividly. And I remember coming across the radio, the announcement that due to rain, due to rain, the truck race was canceled. I saw disappointment in my dad's face, and he said, well, at least they're still Bigfoot. At least they're still going to do that, and we're still going to get to meet Richard Petty. And so we, we plotted on, and then we, we got to the speedway, and we realized that all of the events for the evening, except for the meet and greet, were canceled. Because of rain, they couldn't do what, what they had planned to do. And we, we, those of us who had certain tickets were ushered into a place where we were still thinking we were going to get to meet Richard Petty. And, and they had also arranged for us to, to still see the, the monster truck Bigfoot. And I'll never forget walking into the, the room, kind of like this room, and seeing this sort of 
pathetic Bigfoot sitting there. It wasn't the Bigfoot I wanted to see. And some of you who grew up during that time remember there was this Bigfoot that had skinny wheels and it was sort of, it was sort of this weird thing that they, they used at certain, uh, at certain exhibits. And I was thinking, that's not the Bigfoot I wanted to see. You could stand in the tire and that was cool and all that and take your picture. And then I realized instead of Richard Petty, there sat Kyle Petty. If you know anything about NASCAR, there has never been more of a downgrade <laughs> from Richard Petty to Kyle Petty. And I thought, what in the world is going on? This, this day, this week that was full of excitement and expectation that my dad had planned and, and this was going to be a great father and son evening. And here it went to this great expectation to just bluff. Ah. And, and, and I was disappointed. Now I got over it. But I'll never forget my dad, who it was one of those moments as a kid where you realize he's not Superman. And, and this event that he had planned for, I never forget my dad, who doesn't really show emotion, just his shoulders slumped and thinking, I, I couldn't have done anything different. I'm so sorry. I, I, I hate that this happened and, and, and trying to make it up and, and, and try, there were some other race car drivers there and he was trying to tell me how cool this race car driver was and I was thinking, it's not Richard Petty. There's no cowboy hat, glasses. That's not who I wanted to see tonight. I'll never forget just the frustration with my dad. And Peter writes to a group of people he writes to us, warning us that life is full of all kinds of disappointments like that. That we are constantly getting our hopes up for things and we expect things, and they're never what we think they're going to be. Quite often, even when we get what we want, it's not as great as we thought it would be. But his point in chapter 1 is, even as you live in a world full of failed and dying hopes and expectations, as you are constantly disappointed, you will never turn and look to a father who's disappointed. Your father in heaven is never frustrated about what's going on with you. It's never a shock to him. Actually, one of the things God does for us is he designs disappointments in this world to work in us a greater expectation for the world to come. As things fall apart and as things fail and as things lose their luster, we are to turn to the Father. And he even tells us here in a kind of a weird statement, we're to turn to the Father and rejoice and worship and praise Him because He is working in us a greater hope for the kingdom that has been promised to us, a kingdom greater than anything we could expect out of this kingdom, this world. And we see in verse 3, he calls us to praise in this way. Notice verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word blessed, it's where we get the word or the idea of eulogy. It means to praise someone. And he begins this section by praising the Father. By declaring this, literally, that the Father is blessed. He is full of greatness. He is full of goodness. And notice the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Remember last week we talked about the fatherhood of God for the believer. And he says, if you claim that God the Father is your father, he is the father of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have the same father in Christ. You have as your father the father of Jesus Christ. And notice he says here, according to his great mercy, the word here means pity. And it's mega pity, mega compassion. He says the reason we are blessed to have God as our Father is because He had mega compassion upon us, great pity upon us. We were sinful. We were in our sinful condition. We were dying. And God had mercy. The idea of mercy is that He should have judged us, but instead He blessed us. He adopted us. Notice as the text continues... He caused us in this mercy to be born again, to be begotten, to be rebirthed. Here, the word carries the idea of what we describe as regeneration. When the Spirit changes our hearts. It's what we see in John 3, 3. As Jesus tells Nicodemus to enter the kingdom, you must be born again. You must be born from above. It's the work of the Spirit in making us new. And notice, we have God the Father who is merciful to us. He has born us again. He has made us His children. And notice, to a living hope. Now, biblically, hope isn't this wishy-washy thing. We don't say, I hope I'm going to, to do this. That's not the kind of hope that the Bible describes. The Bible's hope is a confident expectation. You know what's coming to you, and you're not wishing for it, you're waiting for it. And he says, as children of God, we are waiting for something. But notice how he describes it. Look at the verse, a living hope. This expectation that we have, it's not, this, it's not something that leaves us stagnant. We're not waiting, standing still. Notice the word living. We are walking in a hope. This hope that we have because we have been made children of God, it causes us to live a certain way. It causes us to walk a certain way. But notice where it is all rooted. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is the foundation of our adoption in Christ This is the foundation of the mercy that we know, the hope that we have. It is that God sent His Son to pay for our sins and He raised Him from the dead to declare the payment had been made and we live in that confidence. We live there with that expectation. Why? Because we know He raised His Son from the dead. Jesus, we believe in Him. He will raise us up from the dead the same way He raised Jesus from the dead. And it's all wrapped up in the resurrection. But notice, we are born again to a living hope. But notice He further explains it, verse 4, to an inheritance. Now, In the Bible, inheritance always makes us think about the promised land. It was, the word actually means possession. God had promised to Israel that they would possess the land. He would defeat all of their enemies and he would live with them in a specific place. And then we see in the New Testament that that promise begins to be fulfilled in Jesus. 
that Jesus comes to us in flesh and blood and defeats our enemy sin and death and begins to live with us in our hearts by the power of the Spirit. And, and that is the inheritance that Peter is talking about here. That God has come to live with us, to possess us, to make us his possession and rule and reign over our enemies and protect us and secure us, not just in a piece of land, although that's coming in the coming of Christ, but in our own flesh and blood by the power of his spirit. That's the inheritance that he refers to here. But notice how he begins to describe this inheritance. It is imperishable, meaning it doesn't die. It can't be corrupted by death. It is undefiled. It is sin-proof. It is unstained and pure. It is, it is unfading. It's not like flowers that wilt away. It is time-proof. And notice, it is kept in heaven for you. Right now, in heaven, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God in unveiled power and authority. His rule in heaven has been unleashed, and He is seated as King. And He says, that's where your inheritance is waiting. It can't be taken away from you. It's theft-proof. It's there. It's secure. And we begin to understand here that the inheritance he's referring to here is the kingdom and power of Jesus Christ. It's the inheritance of the power and authority that Jesus displayed when he was on earth. And he says, the kingdom of God is at hand in his flesh and blood. And he began to speak to sin, death, and sickness. And he began to reverse before his very eyes. He, he would speak to bodies racked with disease and, and the, the diseases would begin to reverse and people would begin to stand up and walk. And what is he saying to us? The kingdom, your inheritance is here in my word. You are inheriting a kingdom that will reverse sin and death in the world. It is the inheritance of a kingdom where Jesus on the cross dies for our sins and he offers us forgiveness of sins. It is a kingdom where you will have your sins forgiven. That is your inheritance. Jesus who is raised from the dead, you have an inheritance of a kingdom coming that will raise your corpse from the grave. You have a kingdom that is coming that will make all things new. That is the kingdom he is describing here. And as all things are made new, you will be made new. That is your inheritance that is kept for you. But notice verse 5. He begins to describe who we are. He, this, this inheritance, this kingdom is yours and it's guarded in heaven. But notice verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded. Not only is your inheritance guarded, you're being guarded for your inheritance. God is keeping you. God is going to give you the kingdom. And he's going to make sure you get to the kingdom. And here we see the security of the believer. But notice, guard it through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The, the word throughout 1 Peter, last day, it refers to the time after the cross. And there's this idea that the power and authority of Jesus is being revealed now. It has been revealed as His, His first coming. It's being revealed now as the Spirit begins to make all things new in our heart. But there is a day coming where, where Jesus' power and authority will once and for all be revealed and sin and death will be vanquished and you will get your inheritance, the kingdom of Christ. Now, what, what does this do for us? 
The book of 1 Peter, if you've been reading it, is full of soteriology, how you get saved. It's full of eschatology, how you're going to fly away and when you're going to fly away when Jesus comes again. But, but it's not this book that points back and then points forward and leaves us in this parenthesis. You see, a lot of people think, a lot of you think about your salvation this way. I got saved. I walked the aisle. I prayed the prayer. I got baptized. I was at the youth retreat. I did all of that. And now I have this promise that I'm going to heaven. I have fire insurance. But you're living in this time, in this parenthesis, and you're just trying to survive. You don't even know what what happened in the past and what's going to happen in the future, how does that affect my life now? And what Peter is trying to get at here is it changes everything. You have a living hope now that is radically transforming your life and it's just as real as the resurrection. It's just as real as what happened when God changed your heart and it's just as real as what's coming when Jesus splits the sky open and makes all things new and begins to rule and reign unveiled forever. It's just as real as those things. What's going on in your life right now as a Christian is the reality of this living hope and one of the things Peter is trying to press upon us is you can't say I believe in a former corpse back from the dead and I believe in this glorious kingdom that's coming with this glorious king and not be different see you live in a world where everybody's hopes are dying look around Have you ever been to the funeral of an unbeliever? Have you ever been in that moment where you look around and there's no hope? There are just blank stares. People trying to make nice comments about the flower. Oh, doesn't he look good? No, he's dead. He's pumped full of all kinds of junk. It's corpse before us. Why do they do that? They don't know what else to say. He's dead. I know that makes you, some of you feel uncomfortable, but it's true. You can say that at my funeral too. Has he ever looked better? Yeah, he looks better. He's dead now. But we walk around. We don't know what else to say in moments like that. And for the unbeliever, it's despair. I've been to funerals where people have come in slap out drunk because they don't want to face reality before them because they don't have any hope. And yet as the Christian... You have an imperishable hope. Your hope isn't dying. You can stare at death in its face and know that Jesus himself is going to unvault your casket one day. And that body that is withering and fading away is going to be raised up and it's going to be made new. And Peter says, this is the hope that you live with. It changes everything. When you can face death knowing it's not the end of the story, it changes everything. It changes the way that you live now. We live in a world full of stained hopes. Think about this. All of the goodness that the unbeliever enjoys here and now is still tainted with sin. And this is the best it gets for them. The joys of the unbeliever, the success of someone who's apart from Christ, this is as good as it gets. Winning the game, getting the promotion, 
Finally getting married. This is as good as it gets. It's all downhill from here, really. Your hope is stained with sin and death, and in the moments it's decaying. It's one of the glorious things about fall. Which we're, we look out at fall and we go, oh, look at the pretty leaves, especially in East Tennessee. Look at the pretty leaves. Fall is so glorious. Little cold breeze in the air. Do you realize fall is the sign of death? Because winter is coming. And we live in a world that is what? Fall. You should enjoy fall. Some of you are like, oh, now the preacher's telling me I can't enjoy. You should enjoy fall, especially in East Tennessee. But the point is this, it's all dying. The goodness before you is a sign of death. And it's a reminder that all the goodness we enjoy here is tainted with sin and death. And yet our hope as Christians is that there is a day when the blanket of sin and death will be removed from this earth and all of the goodness we enjoy, winning, the promotion, relationships that we enjoy here, Fires in the fall, leaves, everything that we enjoy, everything we enjoy here will all of a sudden turn from goodness to glory when Jesus comes. That's our hope that we are made for a kingdom that is not stained with sin and death. And that's how we live in the world. It changes the way that we see things. We see folks who are clinging to this fading hope. Their bodies are losing their luster in appearance and ability. And yet we realize our bodies will be raised from the dead. It's not fading away. The kingdom we're a part of isn't going away. The curse of sin will be removed. And here's the greatest thing about it. Just as Jesus died for your sins on the cross, if the believer, believer, here is your hope, there is a day coming where you won't know sin anymore. As a Christian, do you ever feel that way? Gosh, I wish I didn't sin anymore. Man, I thought I'd overcome that. Oh, you're prepared for a kingdom where you won't know sin anymore. All the relationships that you know will be pure. They won't be marked by self-preference. You will be able to love purely. And you will be loved purely. That is the kingdom you're prepared for. We live in a world that all of our hopes are fragile. That's why we're racked with stress and anxiety because things can be broken, they can be stolen, they can be taken away. And yet we are a part of a kingdom where it will all be given to us. And as sort of freaks in this world, instead of being racked with worry and anxiety and stress over things, we turn and we give things away because we're a part of another kingdom. He says it changes everything. This living hope, you're not stagnantly waiting for something. You live with confidence and you live with joy. And then one of the most scandalous things he could say, he says in verse 6, notice verse 6, in this you rejoice. You rejoice in this kingdom. Now the word for rejoice here, it literally means joy. Joy, like as a command. It's like saying happy in this, you happy. You are happy. You're full of happiness. That's what the word means. But the joy and happiness he's talking about, it's not rooted in feelings or emotions. There's feelings and emotions that come from it. 
Notice where it's rooted. In this. What is he talking about? The kingdom that has come and defeated sin and death for you. Because that is a reality, you can joy in this kingdom. You can have hope in this kingdom. And then he says, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, that sentence makes no sense. Apart from the gospel. You can rejoice, though you're grieved. That makes no sense, but it's what makes Christianity different from everything else you'll experience in the world. Is that in the face of various trials, all kinds of trials he talks about here, even while you are in anguish, even in this little while, this short time, which is a blip in the light of eternity, you can have joy in the midst of tears and pain and agony. Why? Verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith. Now, what, what he says here is so that the proof that your faith is real and genuine. Notice, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Remember we said he is keeping our inheritance, but he's also keeping us. And he doesn't keep us faithless. What he does as we look forward to that kingdom is he strengthens our faith. He's proving that your faith is real to you and to the world. Your faith is like gold that is being refined. And everything that is impure and everything that is lacking in your faith is being removed. How? Through various trials. You are enduring difficulty now to prove the genuineness of your faith like gold. And notice how gold is refined by fire. How is your faith refined? By fire. Gold perishes, but your faith will not perish. Now, when Peter mentions fire here, there have been some very vivid images in these Christians' minds. Remember what's going on in Rome? Christians are used as street lamps. You walk down the street of Rome, they are hung to the side on blazing fire. The smell of flesh in your nostrils as you read, tested by fire. They're suffering in ways we would never suffer. And Peter has the gall to say that fire is to make you real, is to prove your faith is real, just like gold. How does that give us hope? How, how does that give us hope? It gives us hope in the declaration, your suffering isn't meaningless. It's not meaningless. It's not chaotic. Why is this happening to me? How could this happen to me? Oh, it's happening to you because God is proving your faith is real. It's true. It's genuine. Notice, and it will ultimately be kept to the end when Jesus is revealed in his glory and power and honor. And then notice verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. He encourages the believers there. You're enduring difficulty. Even those who, who've never seen Jesus firsthand, you love him. And the word here means you continue to love him. Even in your suffering, your love for him is growing. Even though you've never seen him, you believe in him. And notice how this verse 8 just intensifies as we move along. You love him. You believe in him. You joy in him. 
And notice, not just joy, joy with the, that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That's what God's doing to your faith. He is giving you this inexpressible glory and praise of Jesus as you suffer, as you endure difficulty, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. As you endure difficulty and you cling to Christ more and more and more, what God is doing is He is saving you from yourself. He is purifying you from yourself. He is rescuing you from yourself. And one day He will totally rescue you from sin and death in yourself. So if you're suffering today, here's the deal. God hasn't left you. And God's not against you. No, He's given you the most valuable thing He could give you in this world. A strong, secure, gritty, rock-solid faith in Jesus that is like gold and will not pass away. That's what he's doing for you as you suffer. Notice throughout this section the word glory is used. It means gravity. It, it, it helps describe the concept of our worship and faith. Remember we talk about this a lot when we talk about worship. <clears throat> worship is to declare the worth of Jesus. And, and what's to come in our minds is a set of scales. We, we have Jesus on one side of the scales. And when we believe in Jesus, we have our faith on the other side of the scale. And everything that is placed in this side of the scale is to lift Jesus up. It is to raise Jesus up. It is to declare His glory. And so what God is doing through your suffering is He is taking everything that is impure, everything that is less valuable in your faith away over here, even if it means fire, even if it means burning and difficulty, so Jesus will be lifted up. That's what He's doing for you. He, he is calling you to hope in nothing less than Jesus Christ. And that all that will be left on the scales of your heart will, will, will declare the value of Jesus in your faith. He's not against you. Now, if we, if we read that, some of you may not be Christians. You read that, you say, that's just weird. Some of you have shared the gospel with people who they, they want to they figure out suffering and wickedness in the world. And you say, well, it's for our faith. And they say it's strange. It is strange. And it is weird. And it separates your experiences as a Christian from everything else you'll experience in the world, even suffering. If you're a Christian, you don't, you don't act like your faith is some force field that keeps you from suffering. That's what, that's what we're sold that a lot. That, that our faith is going to be this force field. Like we're, we're some Super Mario's just going to run through the world because we have faith. That's a Nintendo game for you older folks. It's actually an old one, so I'm old. But we act like that's what our faith is. I can just run through anything in this world. Or folks have convinced us that faith is just be positive, be positive, smiley, cheesy, best life now, be positive, be positive. It's not true. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. People die. You will find yourself in waiting rooms. You will find yourself standing at the back of the funeral home with tears in your eyes. That's not your best life now. You can't have it here. You can't have it here. Your best life is a zillion years from now. And that changes the way you see the casket. That changes the way 
You see the spouse who's been there for 20 years walk out the door and say, I don't love you anymore. These are real life things that you just can't smile through. And Peter says, no, what your father is doing for you in those moments is something glorious. He is giving you faith that says Jesus is better than death. Jesus is better than people. What God is doing is he's burning from your hopes all of your idols. He's not far away from you. He's taking everything out of your life that you would trust in other than Jesus. And so when people let you down, the Father is saying, look to me. That's what this is about. Look to me. It's the same thing that happens in our prayer life. I know it's hot in here with the wall. I'm sweating profusely. Just give me 15 more minutes. 20, 30. (laughs) Think about your prayer life. Some of you come in here today and you think, my prayer life is, is non-existent because I don't have discipline. It's not because you don't have discipline. It's not. It's because you don't have faith. So you're not trusting God is sovereign. You believe you're sovereign. And when you get the news of cancer, you don't go, oh, I just got to be more disciplined to pray about this. When something bad happens, you don't go, I've got to be really disciplined to pray about this. No, you go, God, please hear my cry. Take the cancer away. What's that? Faith, more valuable than gold. That's what it looks like. It's not discipline. It's tested by fire, proving that it's real. I'll hurry up and get through the next few verses. Verse 10. Concerning this salvation, this rescue that's going on in your life that will be unveiled in heaven when Jesus comes and rules and reigns. The prophets prophesied about this grace, this undeserved favor and salvation that's been given to you. They looked into it. This is amazing. The prophets who were writing about the kingdom to come, they didn't even understand the kingdom to come. Who is this Christ, this Messiah that the Spirit, verse 11, was telling them to predict his sufferings, the cross? They didn't even get it. They didn't even get the subsequent glories, the kingdom that was coming. It it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. They were writing and proclaiming about a kingdom that was coming. Notice how it changes here. In these things that have now been announced to you, the good news of Jesus Christ that has been delivered to you, the prophets didn't even understand it. Those who preach the good news to you, even by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, they didn't get it, but you're living it. Isaiah preached of a kingdom he did not experience. Jeremiah preached of a kingdom he did not experience. You're experiencing it now. You are. Isn't that amazing? But notice how he ends here. Things into which the angels long to look. And the word here is that they, the angels in heaven are peering down at what's going on in our lives. They are blown away that... Jesus would come, take on flesh, and die for sinners, be raised from the dead, and then God would send. No, I know the temple, the temple, the sanctuary, the presence of God in the Old Testament. You've put your spirit 
in these sinners who rebelled against you, you've made them sons and daughters. The angels in heaven are on their tiptoes amazed of what you got in Jesus. So when you think, oh, what is this Christianity thing, this faith thing? I'm still kind of miserable. I'm still kind of disappointed. The angels are screaming, don't be disappointed. You are an historical anomaly. You are a spiritual phenomenon that has never happened in the universe. You, you, because you have the Spirit of God living within you, because you have the Word of God that's shaping you into the image of the Son. You have that living in you, and the prophets can't believe it. You see, we live in this, this tension where I want to go back to the good old days. Remember when the kids were small, and it was so, oh, they were so sweet and so innocent, and it was so great. I want to go back. You were poor back then, by the way. You didn't know what life was about back then. Remember that? Just remember that part of going back. We want to go back to the good old days. The good old days weren't good old days for everybody. The 1950s were not great for everybody in our culture. Mayberry only existed for some. But we want to go back to that. Or I can't wait to the next thing. I can't wait till I get my driver's license. I can't wait till I graduate college. I can't wait till I have the kids. I can't wait till I get the job, the promotion. I'm going to do all these great things and then I'm going to retire. I can't wait. And we spend our life reaching back for something and then looking forward. Can't wait for this. And the angels and the prophets say, You're crazy because what you're experiencing right now is amazing. Amazing. We even want to go, if I just lived in the time of Abraham, if I could have just lived in the Exodus and walked across the Red Sea, if I could have just lived and saw David just smack Goliath in the head, it would have been awesome. If I could have just walked and talked with Jesus, if I could have just lived in Acts, the book of Acts. By the way, they were suffering. They were chained and imprisoned. But if I could have just lived then, my faith would have been stronger. And the prophets say, you're a moron. You're an idiot. And the angels are screaming at you, why are you so discontent? You have glory to come entrenched in your heart now. And it should change the way that you see everything. Stop reaching back and stop longing for something that, that is never going to meet your expectations in this world. Oh, live with a glory and live with a hope in a coming kingdom that causes you to be radically different. God is doing something glorious in you right now. Right now, He's doing something amazing in you. Every day you have an opportunity to love Jesus more. Don't waste it. Look into the Word of God and say, what would you teach me today? How would you teach me to follow Jesus today? What should I believe more about the gospel? I'm searching for acceptance in this world. Oh, but I have a Father that has accepted me. I'm looking for something that is of value in this world. Oh, I have the blood of the infinite Son of God that has marked me out. Oh, I'm looking for some relationship that's going to satisfy me. Oh, I have the Spirit of God living within me. What other relationship do I need? That is what God is doing in your life right now. He is forming you into something that is more valuable than gold. And you know how the goldsmith knows when the gold is pure? 
And he looks down and he sees his face staring back at him. Paul tells us that we've seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that is the weight of glory that God is working in your life right now. That the Father would look down at you and see the Son staring back at him. Even a son that would suffer, but a son that wasn't disappointed three days later when his fingers began to move and his heart began to beat and he got up and walked out of a first century coffin. And he lives, he lives, he breathes, he rules, and he reigns. He is our living hope. Let's pray.